0: Something that so many of our audience members don't know or there's a misunderstanding that is perpetuated, sometimes even by clinicians, that the female body, if you've got an average, healthy young woman who is not on the pill, who is menstruating, what she needs to know is as she menstru- as she goes through her cycle of, let's say, give or take 28 days, on day eight of her cycle, the level of estrogens in her body are not the same as day 15 or day 22 or day 28 for that matter equivalently. Her progesterone levels are not the same. Equivalently, her testosterone levels are not the same. So there is a circadian rhythm as a young woman goes through starting the cycle day one when she first bleeds, when she first has her menses, usually let's say seven-ish days. Then by day eight, she stopped her menses. She now goes in, she's no longer menstruating, quote unquote. And now she's day eight, day nine, day 10. During these days, her estrogen levels start to slowly increase. Then they come back down. Conversely, testosterone and progesterone. So the first thing the viewer has, the listener has to understand, at any given point in your circadian rhythm, literally your cells respond to these hormones by changing gene expression. A female body that is menstruating healthily, literally is a body that is epigenetically gene expression variations in her cycle secondary to the changes of her hormones welcome to better with
1: dr stephanie i am your host dr stephanie estima This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie. And I am so excited for our super geeky, super nerdy conversation today on functional genomics, genetics testing with my friend and colleague, Dr. Mansoor Mohammed. Now, Dr. Mansour is the current president and CSO of the DNA company. This is a company that is a provider of comprehensive functional genomic testing. They also do consulting and personalized um, health solutions for the recipients. Um, now, Dr. Mansoor has a long history in genetics. He is the former director of genomics at Quest. So many clinicians who listen uh, to the pod will know Quest Diagnostics. It's one of the world's largest reference laboratories. Um, he was also um, the director of research and development at Spectral Genomics, which is, again, one of the industry's first commercial genomic microarray developers, which spun out of the Bayer College of Medicine under Dr. Mansoor's leadership. Now, we go, as you might expect, on a conversation around genetics, super hard on the geek, but it is going to be so useful in the overall conversation for health. And so we start off a conversation really just identifying, you know, what the difference between, you know, genetics and epigenetics uh, are, you know, how to, how does the genotype and epigenetics intersect? And then we talk about some of the specific arrays that uh, Dr. Mansoor's company, the DNA company provide. So a lot of times when you do a DNA test and you'll see me sort of uh, knock this a little bit in our conversation, but I often, when you see genetic tests come back, they just give you, uh, we'll call it, you know, useless clinical information. You know, I, I told that you'll hear me say this to Dr. Mansour in the conversation, you know, when I did the 23andMe test, you know, it told me that I'm very likely to have a unibrow. And it's like, I know that, (laughs) you know, like I don't need to take a genetic test. I know how often I tweeze my eyebrows, you know? So, um, so we have this discussion around why he and his company have chosen certain genes to be looking at. And we look at the metabolism of our sex hormones. So this is going to be really important for men and women, but we talk about progesterone to androgens and then what happens to our androgens, what are the different types of testosterones, and what are some of the enzymes and genes that really do move the needle in terms of how fast or slow or what types of testosterones we typically favor. And then of course, we talk about aromatization from testosterones to estrogens. So, So we talk about the different uh, pathways, again, with certain predispositions, certain genetic uh, blueprints, which pathways we are more likely to prefer and what are some of the things that we can do to modulate that. So what are some epigenetic tools that we can use to modulate our genetic blueprint? We get into methylation and compt. We talk about gluconeuronidation, glutathionization. We talk about um, the f- different phases of elimination of estrogens. So, we talk about phase one, phase two, phase three, which you'll recall from another conversation on the pod we had with Dr. Carrie Jones. And then we get into menopause briefly as well and some of the things that we can be thinking about from a genetic perspective. Now you are going to absolutely love this conversation. And just before I lead you in, I wanted to share with you a very exciting announcement. And that is that the audiobook version of my international best-selling book, The Betty Body is finally available. I know so many of you have reached out over emails and DMs on Instagram and Facebook messages. You listen, a lot of you listen to your books on Amazon, on Audible and it's there now for you. So if you just search for The Betty Body, so that's B-E-T-T-Y B-O-D-Y, you'll find it there for purchase. Or if you already have an Audible subscription, you'll be able to add it to your book selection. And of course, if you are one of the thousands of women who already have a copy of the Betty Body, head over to BettyBodyBook.com and I have over 500 bucks in gifts for you. And that's nutrition and rehab and fitness because I like to treat you. I love to spoil you because you deserve to be spoiled rotten. And of course, it's my way of thanking you for supporting me and for the ongoing impact that this book is having. Okay. So with all of that said, I am super happy uh, to bring you my conversation with my good friend, Dr. Mansoor Mohammed. Dr. Mansoor Mohammed, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me, Dr. Stina.
1: Yes. uh, We, and you and I have, uh, you know, we've spent, we were saying in in the pre-chat, you know, we've spent some many long days together filming, um, you know, uh, DNA and uh, genetic um, pathways for your clients. So I'm I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today because I think that there is, you know, we're going to talk about functional uh, genomics today, but I, I think it may be worth starting first telling us a little bit for anybody who is not familiar with you, your work with the DNA company and what functional genomics are. Maybe let's start, let's start with what uh, functional genomics are and how you found yourself uh, in this line of work.
0: Well, thank you. So I'm a classically trained geneticist, which means, you know, typical PhD program, I focused on both genetics and immunology. And then as with most geneticists, you don't go down a path where you start hyper-focusing on a particular gene, a particular gene as it's re- relevant to maybe disease states. And I was blessed at UCLA to mentor when I was doing my postdocs, so this is after my PhD, I did my clinical internship focusing on cancer diagnostics. So I spend a lot of time looking and I think we can all, our viewers can all appreciate that a person's innate genetics can impinge upon, can influence their risk factors for different cancers. And so without getting into the details, i focused several years of my life on the The genetics of cancers. And then a very unique opportunity was posed to me because of some of the IP and some of the uh, publications that, again, I was blessed to be with just the right place, the right time, with the right mentors. Baylor College of Medicine, which is arguably in some ways better than UCLA, when it comes to developmental genetics. So you see, as a geneticist, you typically focus on either cancer genetics or developmental genetics, developmental genetics, of course, being the genetics of early childhood development. And we typically had to pick one or the other. But when I was offered the opportunity to come to Baylor and, you know, start to specialize in developmental genetics, I rushed at it. I thought, you know, why be just cancer geneticist? So at that point, I was exposed to not just the genes that when broken cause cancer, speaking plainly, but to the whole genome. The, I, I was exposed to the concept of the operating manual that a person's genetic makeup defines the nu- all of the nuances, the minutiae of how that little baby's body was developing, i.e. early childhood development, and then going on to adult cellular behavior. And at about that time, shortly after I finished my work at Baylor College of Medicine, a new field of genetics was starting to emerge. And it was called functional genetics, based exactly on what I just said, that we were beginning to understand. Because, of course, right at that time, we had the completion of the Human Genome Project. So now we had the whole manual of the human genetic material decoded And so we could actually start with vigor, studying this manual and really appreciating that, Stephanie, for you, me, for all of our audience members, our genetic makeup is our operating manual. And so a few years after that, it's been, gosh, I'm going to date myself now. It's been about 16 going, uh, yeah, but 16 years now, I focused my entire career path on this concept of functional genomics. And what is that functional genomics? To conclude and to clarify which forms the basis of everything that we do at the DNA company, functional genomics as is descriptive in its term is the understanding that a person's genetic makeup is well beyond you know the color of our eyes and the color of our hair and what sex we are. It, it, it defines Every cellular detail, the functions, how good are our cells at absorbing various nutrients, utilizing those nutrients, how good are our cells at creating energy, how good are our cells at getting rid of toxins, metabolizing things, transporting things inside and outside of the cell. All of these minutiae functions that are obviously radically necessary for us to be healthy And by the way, to the degree that we're doing these functions, either optimally or suboptimally is the degree to which we have a baseline of health. This study of the genetic manual to determine these nuances, this is the study of functional genomics. This is the focus of the DNA company. We are focused on decoding and intelligently interpreting the human Genetic operating manual so that we can empower individuals to use this knowledge just as they would use an operating manual for anything else to ensure that they're using that manual, quote unquote, as optimally as possible.
1: And I love that because I think that uh, there is potentially a misunderstanding around genes and genomics in general, right? So we often hear, I've had clients say to me, well, it's it's not really that my genes, it's my epigenetics that matter. It's how those genes marinate. It's how those genes live. And of course, that's true to an extent, Mm -hmm. but I would love for you to clarify the relationship between functional genomics as operating manual, as as you've just described so eloquently, and and the intersection of epigenetics and how those two operate or how those two influence each other.
0: Indeed. So very quickly, as a quick but accurate definition, epigenetics refers to anything, epi, that which is above genetics, refers to anything that influences your genetic makeup. And here what we're speaking of influences your genetic makeup at the level of expression. And this is the key. You see, many people and many, you know, even we might say experts try to make it seem that your epigenetics, because that's the thing that will influence your expression of your genetic makeup, that really all of the emphasis is on epigenetics. And many consumers and ill-informed individuals walk away from this with with the belief that, well, ultimately, my particular genetic variation or type doesn't matter because all that matters is how I'm influencing it. And actually, this is an incorrect perspective. So what is epigenetics? Epigenetics is how we express our genes. So, for example. You see, Stephanie, Dr. Stima, we've got 22,000 genes, give or take 22,000 genes, which means 22,000 individual instructions that are used to orchestrate the wonder and the miracle of human cells, human organs, and then in totality, the human individual. 22,000 genes. But what you'd be surprised to know is at any given point in time, right now, at any given point in time, in any given cell type in the body, my skin cells versus my retinal cells versus my cardiac cells versus my lung, my liver, my brain cells, and so on and so forth, they all have the same 22,000 genes, by the way, but they're using, they're expressing, they're using the instructions of these 22,000 genes at different times and in different numbers. Heart cells might use a subset of those 22,000, cell, 22,000 genes, and my skin cells might use a different subset. This is the first thing we need to understand that our cells use potentially different parts of our operating manual. Number one. Number two, that our cells, any given cell, clearly, therefore, is not expressing or using all 22,000 genes all at once at any given point in time. We, our cells are very efficient. We turn on and off genes, and we'll talk about this, Stephanie, later as we get into female hormone control and metabolism, but our cells and our organs and our body turns on certain genes at the right time so that that job can get done. Then we turn off those genes when we don't want that job getting done. This is key to energy conservation and the circadian rhythm. We are circadian creatures. Our body does certain things at certain times for optimal function and does not do other things at other times. And were they to do certain jobs that have to get done, But were they to do those jobs at the wrong time, in the wrong place? That's what is actually the foundation of many illnesses. Epigenetics, therefore, describes when and how a certain gene will be expressed. In other words, when and how that instruction encoded in that gene will be used. And that is radically important. However, It still returns to the fact, Stephanie, that for a gene, so let's take a gene that we'll talk about later in the hormonal discussion. Let's take this all-important gene CYP19A1 CYP19A1 our audience some some of our audience members might otherwise know this gene by its more common name aromatase so CYP19A1 the name of this gene is aromatase it's a gene all human beings all women and all human beings men as well we have two copies of this gene now this gene is the instruction for how we convert testosterone into estrogen and yep Our audience just heard me correct and heard us correct. Estrogen is produced from testosterone. Our bodies, male or female, female or male, we must first make testosterone before we aromatize testosterone into estrogen. So simply stated to conclude, estrogen is nothing other than aromatized testosterone. And this gene encodes the instruction to do that radically important job certain things certain environmental exposures certain foods that we eat int- intentionally unintentionally will either turn on this gene or turn off this gene that is epigenetics so for example there are epigenetic factors that will induce this gene to turn on and of course if we turn this gene on what are we doing we're converting our testosterone into estrogens other food groups other things will turn off this gene. And if we do that, we are slowing the process within which we convert testosterone to esterines. This is epigenetics. However, that very gene, aromatase, CYP19A1, of which we have two copies, that gene comes in different versions. There is a version of that gene that you will innately have a fast-acting version of that gene, There's a different version that you innately have a slow-acting version of that gene, and that is your genetic makeup. That has nothing to do with your epigenetics. So a person can be innately, they have the fast version of aromatase, a different person has the slow version of aromatase. And let's say that these are two 19-year-old university student young women that are roommates with each other. They're two 19-year-old roommates. They've lived with each other for so long, their cycles are coordinated. They've got their cycles at the same time. They eat in the dorm together. They exercise together. They're exposed to the same environment together. But one has the fast version of aromatase. The other has the slow version of aromatase. Now. Because of their lifestyle factors, choices, their environmental exposures, their dietary choices, they are both exposed to the same epigenetic factors that turn on and turn off their aromatase gene. But the young woman with the fast version of aromatase, regardless of her epigenetic factors, whenever her gene is turned on, she is simply going to be measurably faster at converting her testosterone into estrogen versus her roommate who will be measurably slower at converting her estrogens her testosterone to estrogens despite the epigenetic phenomenon. So to conclude, Dr. steamer and for our audience, epigenetics is radically important. It defines how we use our operating manual But at the end of the day, the version of the operating manual you have, which genes have the fast version, the slow version, the medium version, the optimal version, the suboptimal version, that is something that is genetics, that is innate to you, and it is before, it it precedes epigenetic considerations.
1: I I love that. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on the podcast for exactly what you just said, because there's so many things that, you know, I've done a lot of genetic tests. I've done the 23andMe's and, and, you know, where I I sort of call it like coffee table genetics, right? Like they, you know, they, one of the reports uh, said to me, you know, you are more likely to have a unibrow Um, It's like, listen, I'm, I'm Lebanese and I'm Portuguese. Like I, I already know that. (laughs) Like I didn't need to pay for this. The other thing it said to me was, um, something with, um, you know, I have the certain polymorphism that allows me to smell, you know, if I, if I consume asparagus, I can smell the change in the urine, like how the, you know, so I was like, well, like I already knew that too. Like I have asparagus, like I know when that happens. So I I thought that, you know, and not to call it you But I was like, well, you know, tell me something I don't know. But Mm -hmm. what I what I thought was really so profound about the results that we had from the DNA company was that it told me. It told me about how I metabolize we're going to talk about the the like the metabol- the steroidogenesis and how we metabolize all of our sex hormones um, today so it told me that it told me how many number of you know copies I had of certain like in my glutathionization pathway like how many GST thetas and mus and pies and things that I had never considered before or was never told about before and that's where I think that your analysis or your company's analysis stands out because I. It, it's important to look at SNPs. I think it's important to look of course. at polymorphisms. You need to look at that. But I also like that there's like copy number uh, variant analysis uh, with you as well. And there's, I think there's other things that are important when we look at genes. Yes, you wanted to say and, something. And no, no,
0: it's so important because thank you for highlighting that. Let's link that back to epigenetics. When we just said that epigenetics are factors, lifestyle factors, environmental factors, nutrition factors, things that we eat, things that we do intentionally, unintentionally, that then cause our genes, depending on their version, to be turned on or turned off. Well, as you've just highlighted, there are variations that we all have, Stephanie, and our viewers should know this. There are certain genes that a healthy person out there may not have that gene at all. And let's repeat that slowly. There are variations beyond SNPs, SNPs here being the variations in the spelling of genes, in the lettering of genes. But there's another type of SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms. But there's another type of variation that you've alluded to that we also cover, which is where a gene, which we typically should have two copies of, is completely missing from the human operating manual. These are called CNVs, copy number variations. That's actually what I spent the majority of my academic career discovering and writing and researching about. Well, here's the point, Stephanie. If a person does not have a gene at all, Meaning, whatever that gene is, like the GST Theta-1, the GST Theta-1, that uber important detox gene, uber important, and by the way, uber important in hormone metabolism, when we come to the fact that we understand that sex hormones cause estrogen byproducts, they cause oxidative byproducts, they can even cause toxic byproducts. This GSTT-1 gene and its job, its enzyme, super important to dealing with those byproducts. Well. What if you find out that you don't have this gene at all? And by the way, that happens. My point here is all of the epigenetics in the world does not impact a gene that you don't have. If you don't have the gene, nothing epigenetically will cause you to express that gene or use it either more or less because you don't have it. And so, again, this is where that superficiality, and I get it that, you know, we need to make things simple and understandable for our audience, but I think everything we're talking about here, any in-tuned consumer or audience member will realize, my goodness, why haven't I been told this before? And that's, I think, really what you do so brilliantly is to take these concepts, make it suitable for your audience, but at the same time, don't give, don't, Don't give them a short-changed version of it. Let them know the importance of this while putting it in a manner that's understandable.
1: Yes. And, you know, just following on your example, you said there's like, you know, if you have one woman with a slow CYP19A1, she might have a tendency to run androgen dominant uh, or, you know, her aromatization from testosterone to estrogens are not going to be optimal versus, you know, the same 19 year old, same environmental stimulus who very quickly is going to aromatize her testosterone. You're going to see generally you can, you know, without looking at her genes, you can sort of infer. From her morphology, right, so that there, you know, maybe you can comment on that because you can look at a a woman or a man uh, and say, okay, so I, you know, maybe looking at the size of your breasts or the size of your hips or you know how much muscle you have, there can be an inference generally in terms of what your, um, you know, your genetic blueprint or your operating manual might look like. Would you agree with that?
0: One hundred percent, and it's one of the things that makes what I do so cool, and it's one of the things that has attracted so many individuals of. whether they be elite athletes or executives or consumers of any variety, because unlike what you just cited as the experiences that you've had, which is the all-too-common experience, you hear these things that are coffee talk. They are you know, recreational in nature, and it's cool for the first week until you tell the rest of your family members and friends, but it didn't really impact how you approach life. When people hear what we tell them and they experience through the fact that before I even do a genetic consult with someone, when I meet them, if I see them, I can say, you know what, you are likely to have this, this and this be your functional modality. How do you know that about me? Because this is the nature of functional genomics. Or conversely, I can see the genetic blueprint of a person having never met them, assuming that I know that they're male or female, and I can say this genetic profile belongs to a female who is likely to have such and such morphology before I ever meet her. And the accuracy of that is based in our ability to interpret these nuances that we're going to talk about. Stephanie, Dr. Sima. on this point, it's really important that we highlight something here for our audience members, including the clinicians of our audience members, and that is we're about to embark now on a really cool journey for our female audience, well, our audience members, but primarily our female audience members to learn some really not just cool things, but life informing and probably life-transforming things about their bodies, their health, their, their viewpoint of longitudinal health as it relates to sex hormones. So before we go any further, Stephanie, I think it's so important for our audience members to understand what are sex hormones and how do they influence the body? You know, we hear about testosterone and i think we can kind of all most of us will understand that's an androgen testosterone so that's the hormone that causes the more if you want to call it male dominant or masculinized features and that's a very superficial way of looking at it but you know testosterone is the thing that induces muscle mass development testosterone impacts the body in a number of ways it impacts cellular metabolism it even radically impacts neurologic function it brings about certain mood modality types Estrogens, a different sex hormone, impacts the body in what we would call the more feminizing manner, right? So it impacts fat deposition in the body. It also impacts cellular metabolic rate. It impacts the growth and the the, the secondary sexual features, characteristic, characteristic features of the female body, testosterone, the male body. However, we have to be clear that both hormones are present in both sexes both hormones. And optimal development is going to reflect the interplay between these two hormones, which brings back and begs the question, how do these hormones do what they do? When you've got that shirtless six-year-old little girl, you know, and she's with her shirtless six-year-old twin brother, and they're running around playing around, and if they both had a boy cut, you probably wouldn't know which one is the girl and which one is the boy. Okay, so what happens when puberty comes along? The cells of their bodies—the twin girl, the twin boy—the cells of the bodies of their bodies are programmed that when puberty hits and these hormones, the sex hormones, the progesterones, the androgens, testosterone, and others, and estrogens, when they begin to be produced. These hormones interact with the cells of the body and start to create noticeable secondary sexual features. Mind you, there are as many other internal features that we do not see, cellular behavioral features that we don't see that are also changing, including brain development in relation to these hormones. But again, it begs the question, how do the hormones do this, job? Hormones, and for our listeners out there, All hormones, whether they be sex hormones, your progesterones, androgens, and estrogens, whether they be thyroid hormones, insulin, whether they be any other hormones that we can list, all hormones impact or create what they create in the human body by binding their receptors so for every hormone, there is a receptor. A receptor is the thing that allows that hormone to bind to it, get into the cell, and change cellular behavior. So in other words, when testosterone binds its hormone, the androgen receptor, then that cell becomes androgenized. It becomes; it, it takes on the characteristic that is more reflective of it being testosterone bathed in testosterone. How does that happen? How does the binding of the androgen receptor, how does the binding of the estrogen receptor by estrogen, how does the binding of the thyroid receptor by thyroid hormones, how does the binding of the insulin receptor by insulin, how do these receptors, when bound by their hormone, cause the cellular change? Through epigenetics. These receptors, when bound by their hormones, go into our genetic library, and those very receptors bound by their hormones cause the genes to turn on or turn off, okay? So the very concept of hormone receptors, which, by the way, are the products of genes, which, by the way, we'll talk about, you have different versions of it, when activated, determined by your genetic makeup, then impacts your epigenetic, turning on and turning off of genes, which is what causes that flat-chested six-year-old girl, all of her cells were there, but when she hits 12, 11, 13, as the case might be, those same cells now bathed in estrogen estrogen binding the, the hormone receptor, estrogen receptor, that receptor going into those cells and now turning on certain genes, turning off certain genes, those now once smaller cells start to take on division, start to take on cellulose growth, actual growth of the cell to give breast development, hip development, bum development, back of the thighs development. So for everyone in conclusion, this hormones, including sex hormones, impact our bodies by binding to their receptors which are the products of genes and changing gene expression which is epigenetics so that our cells behave differently we now start getting some underarm here we now you know those boys start getting a little smell that they didn't have when they were six or seven years old hopefully and so on and so forth girls start taking on a different body form and so on and so forth so now, with that baseline, that we understand a person's genetic makeup is radically important. We understand that the epigenetic instigators, whether it be environmental, lifestyle, food, or their very own genetics that controls epigenetics, we are going to go on a journey, as you've said, that by interpreting intelligently in a functional manner, which is exactly what we're gonna leverage into, how can we describe to that young woman, even without seeing her, what might be her body type? Because now that we understood everything we just said, you see, let's go back to those two roommates, uh, Stephanie. So one of those roommates, she has the fast. Ability or the fast inherently genetically, inherently faster capacity to aromatize. So when she produces a testosterone, she is pulling more of that testosterone, converting more of that testosterone into estrogens than her roommate, who is doing that much slower because of their genetic difference. Just this alone, and we'll take this and we'll begin to pixelate, we'll begin to add nuances to this. But Stephanie, if we take those two things alone. As you beautifully and accurately, uh, obviously highlighted, the young woman who has the slow aromatase, who is slower at converting her estrogens into her androgen, her testosterone into estrogens, which means her body preserves her testosterone. She's not as quickly converting it into estrogen. What might be the features of this young woman, this roommate versus her peer? Well, immediately, She's going to all things equal and we'll talk about the nuances the other genes but all things equal we're going to expect her to be and she's very very likely to be smaller breasted. She's also likely to have and carry less body fat in the places that the female body so beautifully tends to hold body fat. She's going to tend to be a bit narrow-hipped. She's also going to tend to be because both of these 19-year-old girls they go to the same gym, they go to the same hit classes, the same spin classes, what will happen? The 19-year-old with the slow aromatase, she's the young woman. She is the roommate. She gets that striated thigh muscle. She is the roommate that doesn't have any evidence of cellulite, which is really just a fat deposition phenomenon with some other confounding factors. Her roommate, who eats as clean as she does, who exercises every bit as much as she does, who has the same caloric intake, sleeps in the same room, and so on and so forth, she just naturally, why? Because her cells, as opposed to the first roommate, is being bathed in more estrogen with each menstrual cycle. So her cells now activate the estrogen features, the estrogen genes. And what do estrogen's genes do? They promote fat deposition they sometimes they will lower the metabolic rate of the body so we begin to see by just one gene interpreting it intelligently we actually as you so beautifully noted stephanie we begin to be able to predict the body dimorphic differences between roommate one and roommate two now let's per where we will go with this stephanie let's upgrade that You see, before the CYP19A1 gene, that aromatase gene that was converting testosterone into estrogens, there is another gene, a completely unrelated gene, well, different gene, but related to the pathway. This gene is the CYP17A1 gene. And notice, audience, CYP. The first gene was CYP nineteen A one. This gene, a different gene, CYP seventeen A one. What you can infer from this is these genes belong to the same family, and these family of genes are radically important in our hormone metabolism, radically important in pharmaceutical metabolism. Many of the drugs that you take, medications that you might take in your lifetime are metabolized by these genes. So now we go, before we get to estrogens, we just said CYP19A1, aromatase, converts testosterone into estrogen, aromatizes testosterone into estrogen. But how do you get testosterone? You get testosterone, and by the way, the other androgens, and what are the other androgens, Androstine Dial, DHEA, and testosterone. These four primary androgens are made from none other than progesterone. And that's why the word progesterone is named as such. It is the progenitor. It is the precursor to all of the other sex hormones. So we make progesterone. From cholesterol, there's another word, that mm-hmm. thing, oh, my God, the bad cholesterol. Well, actually, we need cholesterol. She's the mother. To make, <laughs> yeah, you know, she's, she's the, the mother, mother of all our of our yeah. sex hormones and, yeah. frankly, many other hormones. Right. So we take that cholesterol. Okay, step number one, we make progesterone with it. Once we make that progesterone, CYP17A1 converts, that's the Instruction, that's the gene that makes the enzyme, self named sub CYP17A1 enzyme, that will convert progesterone into testosterone. Okay, and the other androgens. That gene comes in different versions. There is a fast version of that gene and a slow version of that gene. Now, let's go back to those two roommates and let's keep it somewhat stocked because, by the way, these combinations happen. So let's go to the roommate who had the slow aromatase. She converts her testosterone into estrogen slower. She preserves her testosterone. And she simultaneously has the fast CYP17A1, which means she converts her progesterone into testosterone with the best of them. So now this young woman, she is making testosterone every monthly cycle in the circadian rhythm of the cycle, right? And let's pause there for a moment, Stephanie. Again, something that so many of our audience members don't know or are mis- there's a misunderstanding that is perpetuated, sometimes even by clinicians, that the female body, if you've got an average, healthy young woman who is not on the pill, who is menstruating, what she needs to know is as she menstru- as she goes through her cycle of, let's say, give or take 28 days, on day eight of her cycle, the level of estrogens in her body are not the same as day 15 or day 22 or day 28, for that matter, equivalently. Her progesterone levels are not the same, equivalently. Her testosterone levels are not the same. So there is a circadian rhythm as a young woman goes through starting the cycle day one when she first bleeds, when she first has her menses. Usually, let's say seven-ish days. Then by day eight, she's stopped her menses. She now goes in. She's no longer menstruating, quote unquote. And now she's day eight, day nine, day ten. During these days, her estrogen levels start to slowly increase. Then they come back down. Conversely, testosterone and progesterone. So the first thing the viewer has, the listener has to understand at any given point in your circadian rhythm, literally the cells in your body, when you understood what we said earlier, that your cells respond to these hormones By changing gene expression, the testosterone gene expression versus the estrogen gene expression versus the progesterone gene expression, or we should say the progesterone gene expression, the precursor, versus the testosterone, that which comes second, versus the estrogens, that which comes third, a female body that is menstruating healthily literally is a body that is epigenetically gene expression variations in her cycle, secondary to the changes of her hormones. So beautiful and so profound to understand. So we now go back to that first roommate. She's got the fast of 17A1. So when she makes progesterone, she's converting her progesterone into testosterone with the best of them. And by the way, when she makes her testosterone, she does not convert it into estrogens very quickly. Now we get an even greater sense of her androgenization. Now we look at this young woman and we know she's going to start having, especially to the degree that she eats well and she's in the gym, she's going to have that triathletic type body, smaller breasted, longer lean muscle groups. She, you know, her roommate now, she had the slow sub 17 a one She's not converting her progesterones into androgens, testosterone, as quickly as her partner. She does convert her testosterone to estrogens much faster. So her testosterones do not stay in the body for a long period of time. They quickly get usurped into estrogens, which means her cells of her body, her muscle cells, the back of her thighs, her chest cells, her bum cells, all of her cells, they don't get as much bathing into testosterone, testosterone, so they do not have as much androgenizing that leanness, that, that masculinity, that is a beautiful counterbalance with the femininity of the body, as much as her, more or less than her roommate. Just these two genes, and let's now cap, and we'll get into a really important heart to the matter coming next, which is where I know you wanna to go to, Stephanie, but let's cap the androgen discussion. You see now, Stephanie, taking again those same two roommates, after we made the testosterone, which we said one was doing faster than the other, there's another gene in this cascade, the steroid 5-alpha reductase gene. What does this gene do? And all women have these genes. All of you have them. Men have them too. This gene is responsible just as much as the aromatase at 19 a one is taking the testosterone and converting it into estrogen. SRD5A2 is taking the testosterone and upgrading that testosterone, DHT, dihydrotestosterone. One Ladies out there, one molecule of DHT is worth 10 molecules of T. One molecule of dihydrotestosterone causes your cells to behave in an androgenized manner six to 10 times more than even the testosterone. Well, that SRD5A2 gene, which you all have, comes in different versions. There's a high-potency version of that gene, there's a low-activity version of that gene, and there's a medium-activity version of that gene. Let's apply this to the two roommates and let's keep it extreme. And the extremes happen just so you can see the clarity of this. So we go back to the female, the 19-year-old, who's already trending more androgenized. Why is she trending more androgenized? Because she makes testosterone the best of them. She holds on to her testosterone the best of them. And she's making. she's a beautiful young woman. She's a gorgeous young woman. But she's not making near as much estrogens. Her body is not being bathed. things equally. Neither of them are on the pill. Her body is not being bathed near as much estrogens as her roommate. Now, in that same young woman, she's got the more potent version of the SRD5A2. So now let's line this up. Three things. She makes testosterone with the best of them. She does not make the estrogens near as quickly. And by the way, when she made the testosterone, she's pulling more quickly some of that testosterone into the virulent DHT. She now upgrades. She's the young woman. She'll make most men blush when we look at her abs. She's going to be that young woman that's got that six pack, heck, that eight pack. She's got the obliques going on. She's got thighs will make me blush, striated muscles, triceps. She's going to have a musculature, and she's going to have that beautiful androgenized female body with less of the external female characteristics of the rounding of the hips. She's not going to have any cellulite. We can bet your bottom dollar on that because of the type of muscle fiber she has at the back of her thighs. Her counterpart, her roommate, has the slow version of SRD5A2. So again, everything about her genetics pushes her this at this point in time, Stephanie, is where we can say roommate number one is androdominant for all of the reasons we've just described, and roommate number two is estro for all of the reasons that we've described. And I'm going to pause there, Stephanie, if there's any clarifications that you want, because next what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, okay, once we've made these seminal hormones and it's impacted our bodies in the way that we've described, What does the body then do with these hormones and their consequences based on what we do with the hormones?
1: Yeah, I know you're doing a fabulous job of explaining it. I have, you know, the only thing I would say is as you are describing the morphology, so the striated muscles, the no cellulite clinically for, and there are a lot of clinicians that listen to this podcast. You might also see, you know, thinning of the hair around the temples, you know, the masculinization, yes. like the, the thicker hair uh, through the chin and not yes. just like hair on the chin, like thick beard like hair right on the chest that kind of thing and then as she gets older if she tends to if she's starting to put on weight she might put weight on in a more male way so in through the you know the central that centralized obesity through the tummy yes
0: yes absolutely because the body now is behaving in a more androgenized fashion the cells of her body that are capable of responding to both testosterone, androgen signals, as well as estrogen, estrogens. You see, the female body has the ability to polarize, to have both androgen signal development as well as estrogen signal development. The male body has the same. Now, all things equal, the male body is designed to respond more to the Androgen signals, less to the estrogen signals, the female body, vice versa. But both body types, both sexes, and obviously we understand that there are things in between, but both general body types are going to respond accordingly. So as you've just noted, what we see in the andro-dominant female, that that the that when she was in university, she was the soccer player, the triathlete. She can, you know, all of the things that we can describe about her. But when she gets a little older, she, you know, she wasn't watching her diet as much. And if she starts to put weight on, she'll put weight on in the more male-like feature. You know, how many males do we see? They can still walk around with skinny legs, you know, and whatever, but a big gut. They're not putting it on. They're not packing it on in the bum or the thighs. That's an an andro imprinting because of how the abdominal fat cells respond when it comes to waking, And so that female that is androdominant for the genetic characteristics that we've just spoken of will have that type of morphology behavior. But also, Stephanie, and we'll get into a little bit more of this nuance and finesse when we get into the metabolism of the hormones, these two young women can also experience differences to the length, clarity, of and circadian rhythm of their hormone cycles, that more androgenized young woman, where she's not creating and converting her androgens into estrogens because her aromatization is lower, to say nothing of the fact that she was also more androdominant, for all of the reasons we've said. She may, for example, start to experience irregularity to her cycles, and that that irregularity is exacerbated much more easily if she were to become very athletic, how many female athletes? Now, look at the, look, here's the which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Many times they're female athletes, and of course, depending on the sport in question, because they had a more androgenized genetic cascade, as per what we've just described. And mind you, then the, because of the stresses and the physical exertion in their bodies, which accentuates the androgenization of the body, and which creates a cortisol imbalance to the body, which therefore creates a progesterone imbalance, which therefore further androgenizes the body, how many female athletes, elite female athletes, miss their monthly cycles altogether? Why? Because their cycle now has lost the crispness of the peaks and valleys of progesterones, Androgens and estrogens, which you need the peak of estrogen and then it coming down to trigger ovulation and to trigger menses, when we begin to not flatten, but when we begin to reduce those peaks and valleys, pushing everything more towards androgenization, we do not get the circadian triggers that lead to ovulation and menses in those elite female athletes that are already androgenized and their very lifestyle androgenizes them further, case in point. The flip of this, the young women that are by nature much more estrogenized, because of the estrogen dominance in their body, they may see other uh, menstrual cycle Uh, uh, variances. They may be the young woman that particularly, the first group of young women, we tend to find missing cycles. We tend to find, especially based on lifestyle choices, they just might miss their cycles. They may be very light. They may not follow a circadian rhythm that is as clearly defined. That's your androdominant cycle, all things equal. Your estrodominant cycle, they may have cycles like clockwork, but they may start noticing that if Especially if they do not do something about extreme estrodominance, they start spotting a cool five, seven days before their real cycle. Why? Because the clarity between their estrogen versus progesterone, that progesterone that you need enough of, which in estrodominance is quickly going from progesterone to testosterone to estrogens, you're therefore losing a different type of clarity versus the androdominant woman. She does not have enough progesterone to maintain the clarity of the uterine lining, to maintain the integrity of the uterine lining. So she starts spotting. She starts getting some cellular scuffing earlier, even before her real menses kicks in. So just by looking at this level, and we're going to go deeper for all of the listeners out there, just at this level, as Dr. Estima has pointed out, we can infer body morphology. We can even infer things like behavioural tendencies, proclivities to anxiety, proclivities to the concepts of PMS reside largely in what we've just said and some of what we're about to say. So we can define morphology and we can define what is happening in that female cycle. And one last point here is, Stephanie, can you imagine then when we take that ultra-androgenized female per every genetic factor that we just said? And then we put her on the pill. In fact, let's take both roommates. So they're now 19 years old. They're off on their own. They're at university. And for the first time in their lives, they're both going to go on the pill. And so they go to the campus clinician who, after speaking to them, knowing their roommates, everything else, puts them on the same pill. And this particular same pill happens to be a slightly heavy dose or higher dose estrogen pill. The young woman who was already estrodominant her going on that estrogenized protocol it will have and it can have certain changes in her body but what about that dominant female that from the time she was 11 or 12 to the time she's 19 those seven years her body was not at all anywhere close to being bathed in the levels of estrogens and by the way when you go on the pill this particular pill, she's on estrogens, not for about the seven days between days 12 of the cycle and, you know, days 19, give or take. She's on an estrogen exposure for 21 days of her cycle. What do you think her body that was not seeing that level of estrogens and therefore her cells were not behaving, her cells were behaving in a more andro feature phenotype What is going to happen to her body and how might her body respond when she's put on that pill? So the point here, before we go further, is, as Dr. Estima has pointed out, we can infer morphology. We can infer cycle differences and cycle normalcies and certain dysfunctions. We can infer how the body might respond depending on the birth control of choice. These are profound things, and they become even more profound, Stephanie, when we go to the next level.
1: Which is where we're going now. And I would also say like mood and behavior as well. You might be able like you had said, you'd mentioned anxiety, like their tendency towards depression or anxiety as well. Can we can also loosely infer that as well?
0: Uh, loosely. And we're, we're actually understanding more and more that the brain is radically impacted, by both androgens and estrogens. Our neurons, the cells in our brain have those receptors that allow androgens and estrogens to get into them. And what we're gonna see next is oftentimes, Stephanie, it's not just the primordial sex hormone, the the testosterone or the estrogen, it is what comes from the testosterone, estrogen, in this case, in young women, particularly what's going to come from the estrogens, which is where we're going to go now.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's go there. So when we talk about estrogens, you know, often people are say, people will say, did you mean to put an S at the end of estrogen? Like, is it estrogens? It's like, yes, there are three different types of estrogens. And of course there are, you know, different metabolic pathways, different metabolites that can come from um, estrogen metabolism. So let's, let's talk about these, not one, but three hormones. And let's talk about the hydroxylation or let's talk about the, let's talk about phase one of estrogen. Estrogen metabolism, which is to say, um, we are high. We are adding a hydroxy group. We're talking about the two OH pathway, the four OH pathway, the sixteen uh, OHE pathway, and we can talk about each of those different genetic uh, predispositions, which each with with each of those genes as well.
0: Absolutely and brilliant uh, interlude and segue into this. So let's remind our audience that we're going to be talking about estrogens. So we're going to be talking about those molecules that can bind the estrogen receptor, and it is when the estrogen receptor is bound by the estrogen, then that cell that expressed the estrogen receptor will begin to change its gene expression indicative of an estrogenized behavior. And why am I stressing this? Because this is where ladies and men out there, molecules that are not what we would call native estrogens food derivatives things like soy derivatives things like derivatives of plastics i.e the water that you drink that's been sitting in that plastic bottle not all plastics but particularly the softer plastics that have been sitting in the car one of my pet peeves is when you know i see my kids leave a water bottle sitting on the side door of the car sitting in the sun and then i tell them throw that thing away don't drink that water that is just right because these you know oh my gosh you know i'm a foodie and i love food vlogs stephanie love food vlogs it's one of my little pet things when i do take a little break i might look at a food vlog and i am amazed stephanie at certain parts of the world that food is served in plastic bags and hot piping food at that that has been right. served in plastic bags is the takeout and i think oh my goodness what are we doing you know those foods are being exposed what is the point here the point is Beyond our native estrogens, there are different molecules. That's where the concept of soy estrogen comes in. The these zeno, the phyto, zeno, these yeah. either phytoestrogens or xenoestrogens. Right. Other molecules can bind to the estrogen receptor. In fact, some of these molecules can outcompete the native estrogen to bind to the receptor. And remember, that's the key. The key is not the hormone itself. The key is, what is binding to the receptor? That's the key, because when the receptor is bound to, that is what initiates the epigenetic cascade that leads to the gene expression changes, that leads to the cellular behavioral changes, that leads to cell behaving more androgenized or estrogenized. Once we get that concept clear, now we get into the estrogen. So there are three primary native estrogens, estradiol, which is oftentimes short-handed E2, estradiol, estrone, short-handed E1, and estriol, short-handed E3. Now the estriol is an estrogen that usually predominates. It's the more primary. It's the more predominant estrogen, ladies, when you're pregnant. For the for the nine months that you're pregnant, that's the estrogen that will be the prevailing estrogen. Because notice you're not having a monthly cycle while you're pregnant, and so it's the estradiol that is the predominant pregnancy estrogen. In your menstruating years, the two pre- predominant estrogens are estradiol and estrone, E2 and E1. For further clarification, as ladies, as you get a little older, you will tend to find that your estrone becomes a bit more predominant. And so you go from being estradiol dominant to estrone dominant as you get a bit older. And remember when you're pregnant, you become transiently estriol dominant. Okay, now why is this important? Keeping in mind that all three hormones, and mind you, the mimics of those hormones, xeno, estrogens, phytoestrogens, can bind the receptor, and it is the binding to the receptor that really matters. Okay. Ladies out there, we said that we convert, and so as Dr. Estima so brilliantly cued this, so now you understand that it is estrogens with an S, three primary estrogens. For clarity, All the estrogens are produced from androgens by that same CYP19A1 aromatase. So we aromatize dion into estrone. We aromatize testosterone into estradiol, same gene, same enzyme, two different, slightly different androgens going into two slightly different estrogens. And the only difference, quote unquote, in these two estrogens, estrone versus estradiol, because let's focus on that now, that's going to be the primary other than the transient estradiol. The estrone versus estradiol, what are the differences? There are slight differences in their ability to bind to the receptor, which is the key. So the degree to which estrone versus estradiol binds to the receptor is the degree to which it causes the cellular feminization, estrogenization of the cell. That's the first. And then the other difference is the differences in their levels as we age, as, we, as younger menstruating women tend to be more estradiol dominant versus estrone. And as they get a little older, a switcheroo happens where we go from estradiol to estrone. Okay. Now, when we take estradiol. So we're going to put aside estriol for the time being. Okay. That's your pregnancy estrogen, all things equal. Now let's ask the question. We've got the estradiol. We've got the estrone. There's a ratio of it in any given young woman who is menstruating. And we're going to ask, she's just made it. Has she made lots of it? Is she estrodominant? Has she made comparatively less of it? Is she androdominant, i.e. the examples of the two roommates that we've been discussing? So now those two roommates, the, the clearly androdominant one and the clearly estrodominant one, they now go in, they get prepared for their cycle. They're getting into that seven, five to seven days prior to the onset of their menses. The body has determined at this point in time that we're not pregnant. We did not... We did not fertilize that egg that was released at the point of ovulation earlier in the cycle. So the body is determined now. Pregnancy has not occurred. We've not fertilized the egg. So what has to happen? We need to get rid of the estrogens, i.e. the estrone and estradiol and estrone that had been previously made. Because ladies, your menstruating month that you're in right now, The estrogens in your body in this menstruating month that are causing your body to behave in all of the beautiful ways that it's behaving and sometimes not so beautiful ways are completely different than the estrogens that you produced in your previous menstruating month. You make them, you use them, i.e. it impacts the body by binding to the receptor and then you get rid of them. When are you getting rid of them? When are you metabolizing them? You metabolize them once the body has realized that the pregnancy has not occurred in those days leading up to your actual menses, into your menses. So now at this point in time, the female body says, there's no pregnancy, I'm I'm gonna metabolize my estrogens. There are three primary pathways, three genes, making three enzymes that will metabolize your estrogens into three distinct estrogen byproducts. So I want the ladies out there to think of this in a very pedestrian way, but it's, a, it's something you'll never forget. Think of during your menstrual cycle, you filled up a barrel with estrogens. You filled up your estrogen reservoir during your menstrual cycle. You filled up an estrogen reservoir as your cycle was going on. Now you've got to empty that reservoir. This reservoir, this this barrel, has three faucets at the bottom of the barrel. And getting into, in the days leading up to your menses, your body will turn on these genes, epigenetic, turn on the genes that were not turned on previously, or not turned on to the level that they are previously, because you don't, metabolize the estrogens, then. So we're now going to turn on these three genes. What are the three genes, or three sets of genes? The first set of genes are what we call CYP1A2 and CYP1A1. CYP1A2 and CYP1A1. They're, again, part of that big, beautiful family of the cytochrome P450 genes. These two genes, the 1A1 and 1A2, are the two genes that make the two enzymes that will metabolize your estradiol and estrone into the two, a product, an estrogen metabolite called 2-hydroxyestrogen, 2, hydroxy estrogen. two Hydroxyestrogen. All it is is you took an estrogen molecule. These two enzymes metabolize them, and now you have a different, you have a metabolite called 2-hydroxyestrogen. It is what is universally referred to as the desirable estrogen metabolite. Why is it desirable? Well, why is the body metabol- What you have to ask is why is the body metabolizing the estrogen in the first place? We're metabolizing the estrogen because so long as that estrogen was in the body, it's binding the estrogen receptor. And so long as the estrogen receptor is being bound, we are altering gene expression in a way that is unique to when that receptor is being bound. And the female body was not designed to have the estrogen receptor turned on 24 7, 30 days a month. 365 days a year the female body was designed for the cells to have gene expression secondary to the activation of the er the estrogen receptor secondary to just a window within your cycle this is a profound concept dr estima when it comes to when we go on the pill for prolonged periods of time because when we go on the pill Assuming it's a 21 cycle pill, you know, and now, by the way, as you know, there are certain times where young women are being put without even a break. Right. So they, they are on an estrogen 365 days a year, year after year, their cells, their estrogen receptors are being activated every single day, causing the gene expression that is associated with that, which in a normal cycle that cellular behavior secondary to the gene expression, secondary to the activation of the estrogen receptor, was only secondary to estrogens for about seven, 10 days of the cycle. Now, so we wanted to metabolize the estrogen to stop it. We want to stop this estrogen from binding the estrogen receptor so as to give the female cells a break from that estrogen receptor gene expression. I'm stressing this for a really important purpose here, because when we metabolize estrogen into 2-hydroxyestrogen, that occurs. 2-hydroxyestrogen has a very, very weak affinity for the estrogen receptor, so it basically is exactly what we wanted to happen. We took the estrogen, We turned it into 2-hydroxyestrogen. The 2-hydroxyestrogen no longer binds the estrogen receptor. We zero out the body of the estrogen response. Good, we've accomplished our task. However, another gene, CYP1B1, cyp one Bravo one another member of this amazing family, it metabolizes your estradiol and your estrone into a different metabolite of estrogen known as 4-hydroxyestrogen, okay? And by the way, as Dr. Steema has pointed out, How is the metabolism going on? You're taking the estrogen and these genes, these enzymes are tagging a hydroxy group to it. That's why it's called 2-hydroxy. Depending on where we stick this hydroxy group, if we stuck it at a particular place on the 2, that's called 2-hydroxy estrogen. If we stuck the same hydroxy group, but in a different place of the estrogen, that's called 4-hydroxy estrogen. And just by virtue of sticking that hydroxy group because of the CYP1B1 gene, which we all have, By sticking it at a slightly different place on the estrogen molecule, 4-hydroxyestrogen retains its ability to bind the estrogen receptor. So now let's pause there. We were metabolizing the estrogen to stop it from binding to the estrogen receptor. Yet, despite doing what I just did, metabolizing it, my metabolite 4-hydroxyestrogen retains the ability to bind the estrogen receptor cause estrogenization of the body, that's not what we wanted. We wanted to give the body a break. So herein lies the first fundamental difference between the metabolism of estrogens into two hydroxyestrogen and four hydroxyestrogen. And ladies, if you understood that, all of the ladies out there, now comes the genetics of it. You see, that CYP1A1, CYP1A2 gene combo, those genes come in different versions, fast or slow. And radically important, the CYP1B1 gene, that gene that is metabolizing your estrogens into what we call the naughtier, the more toxic. Why do we call 4-hydroxy estrogen the more toxic estrogen metabolite? Because it continues to bind the estrogen receptor, it continues to induce estrogenization at a time in your circadian rhythm where you did not want that estrogenization. Step number one. And so of course, ladies, if those two roommates, the roommate, now we're gonna add something here. Both roommates, the androgen dominant roommate and the estrogen dominant roommate, both of them, have the faster, i.e. undesirable version of CYP1B1. So that gene, whose kind of quirky job, we don't know why it's there, because its job is converting estrogen into that naughty estrogen metabolite. And ladies, we all have them but you don't know, until you do your genetics, your intelligent genetics, you don't know if you have the slow version, which is what you want, all things equal, and, or the fast version, which would make you have genetically. And remember, this is beyond epigenetics at this point. It means that the version of your CYP1B1 enzyme, that version is faster or slower at making 4-hydroxyestrogen. Now, let's quickly go back to the androdominant roommate versus the estrogen roommate. The androdominant roommate, for every reason that she's androdominant, for every reason that she's not producing a lot of estrogens in the first place, her fast CYP1B1 does not negatively impact her very much because she's not really making a lot of estrogens. Therefore, she's not making a lot of 4-hydroxyestrogen. Therefore, this phenomenon of the toxic 4-hydroxyestrogen, and let's pause there very quickly, 4-hydroxyestrogen compared to 2-hydroxyestrogen is not just toxic because of its proclivity to bind to the estrogen receptor, it's also toxic because 4-hydroxyestrogen decomposes into these compounds that ultimately lead to oxidative stress in the body. So ladies out there, listen to this. You're gonna take your estrogens, and by the way, so that it's clear, Every young woman takes her estrogens, makes some 2-hydroxy and some 4-hydroxy. Every young woman will make both. But depending on your genetics and depending on epigenetics, you are going to make either more 2-hydroxy, which is a good thing, or more 4-hydroxy by ratio, which is not as desirable. And if you were making more 4-hydroxy estrogen, your body... During this period of estrogen metabolism, which is the period leading up to your menses, which is the period of PMS, premenstrual syndrome. What is premenstrual syndrome? Premenstrual syndrome is the impact on cellular behavior head to toe of the female body's cells experiencing gene expression secondary to the activation of the Estrogen receptor secondary to whether you are making more or less than desirable 4-hydroxyestrogen, more or less than desirable oxidative stress on the body, and that oxidation, if you were making too much 4-hydroxyestrogen, and you were not clearing that 4-hydroxyestrogen, which we'll come to next, your body will then be overly oxidized, which is an overly inflammatory state, and which cells of the body are 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 affected by this over-oxygenation, oxidation, sorry, not oxygenation, completely different phenomenon, oxidation, the cells that are the most estrogen receptive, the lining of the uterine membrane, the lining the, the breast tissue cells, neural cells. So if those are the cells, vascular cells, if those are the cells that have the most estrogen receptors and are therefore Engulfing the naughty 4-hydroxyestrogen more and becoming more estrogenized and more oxidized, those are the tissues in PMS, the increased cramping, the increased clotting, the increased neural responsive to the the anxiety edgy causing effect of the 4-hydroxyestrogen and so on and so forth
1: and the tender so breasts the, and the and the, you know. the tender breast tissue yes. sometimes
0: yeah. a bit more fibrosis to the yeah. breast tissue mm-hmm. an increased risk of an increased risk of cyst formation in the body Astro-dominance and estrotoxic dominance is strongly associated with cis development in the body breast cysts uh, 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 uh and just actually cysts, generally speaking, period, it's more associated with fibroid development, endometriosis, because these tissues, when constantly cycle after cycle, month after month, year after year, in those delicate days prior to menses, they're getting bathed in that higher toxicity for hydroxyestrogen. We create an environment of circadian chronic inflammation in those tissues, which begin to manifest over time, again, depending on other factors of lifestyle, environment, and nutrition. So now we come back to the scenario of the two young women. The androdominant female, she has the faster, both of them have the, let's say, less desirable, fastest CYP1B1. Both of them convert their estrogens into the 4 estrogen at a rate that we probably wouldn't want. But because the androdominant female isn't making as much estrogens to begin with, she never really notices this slightly naughty pathway that she's predisposed to until she goes on the pill. Now, when the androdominant young woman goes on the pill, remember we gave a little hint earlier right. that these two young women, they were put on the same pill but their bodies do not respond as equally because now what we do in the dominant female when we put her on that pill we are basically uncovering we are basically pulling away the veil we're we're, we're opening the commode so to speak to a, to a latent estrotoxicity an estrotoxicity she was predisposed to but that did not wasn't giving birth to, wasn't happening because of her under dominance, we put her on the pill, we expose her to circadianly surplus estrogens, and we now uncover that naughty phenomenon. So again, we can start to see how different young women respond differently and how many times, Dr. Esteema, you and I, we both, we have patients that go, oh my God, I went on the pill and after that first month, I knew it was not for me. My body, my behavior, everything just changed because of that radical shift that the body was exposed to in terms of estro metabolites. Now here, Dr. Steimer, we need to get into some of the nuances, really cool nuances. You see the CYP1A2, Dr. Esteema, that, that CYP1A2 gene that makes the CYP1A2 enzyme that metabolizes estrogens into the healthier 2-hydroxyestrogen, that is the same gene that metabolizes caffeine, coffee, caffeine. And guess what? When you drink a cup of coffee, so when you get up in the morning and you've slept for eight hours, hopefully we're all getting you know, at least a very good seven hours, if not eight hours of sleep, so important in our circadian rhythms. After having slept for eight hours, all things equal, depending on what you ate for dinner, depending on your room's environment and toxic exposures and mold exposures and so on and so forth, your cyp one a 2 gene is dormant. Here's epigenetics, you've got the gene, it's dormant. You didn't need to express it. Or you get up and you go down to the kitchen and you make your first cup of joe. Once you begin to enjoy that cup of coffee, once caffeine begins to get into your bloodstream and the body sees caffeine in the body, in the bloodstream, it now turns on the CYP1A2 gene, which is the gene needed to metabolize caffeine. That's an epigenetic phenomenon. that caffeine consumption epigenetically turned on your CYP1A2 gene. Now, mind you, the CYP1A2 gene comes in two versions, a fast version or a slow version. You're going to turn on the fast version just as much as you turn on the slow version. But once turned on, Now, epigenetics no longer is the issue. The issue here is, did you turn on a fast-acting CYP1A2 or did you turn on a slow-acting CYP1A2? Okay, that's besides the point. The point here is, when you had that cup of joe, young ladies, and you turn on your CYP1A2 gene, and you turn on your CYP1A2 gene at the time that you need or you want CYP1A2 to be taking your estrogens and taking it down the desirable 2-hydroxy pathway, it's actually why drinking a cup of coffee, all things equal, we're speaking of good quality, you know, yes. mold-free coffee, all of the sure. other things that we can talk about in a day, yes. that caffeine consumption at healthy levels has been associated with healthy female longitudinal estrogen health outcomes. Caffeine consumption has been associated with lower risk of breast cancer, for example, in large studies. There are other factors, clearly. But just to show you that the caffeine that epigenetically initiates the CIP1A2 gene, which is the gene that also initiates the healthy estrogen metabolism, this is really important. Now, let's take the same phenomena. Cigarette smoke. Smoking or the exposure to smoking. If you're not smoking, your roommates are, or you go to a bar, or certain other environmental toxins, particularly aerosolized toxins. Like
1: benzene and...
0: Benzenes and so on and so forth. Guess which gene they turn on? They turn on the cyp one b one gene. They turn on epigenetically the very gene that you wanted to silence that gene. Because when that gene, cyp one b one is turned on, Which of the estrogen pathways will your body prefer? The less desirable 4-hydroxy pathway, okay? Let's go a step above that. You cruciferous vegetables. You know, everyone out there, mom knew best when she said, eat those broccoli, eat your (laughs) cruciferous vegetables. Yes. Cruciferous vegetables are, again, assuming organic and not laden with pesticides and so on and so forth. Cruciferous vegetables contain ingredients called sulfurophanes. Sulfurophanes make a compound called indole-3-carbonyl. Indole-3-carbonyl makes a compound called DIM, indolomethane. And what is so radically important about DIM? DIM... As a compound, as a food derivative, as a nutrient derivative, as a nutraceutic that you can buy, DIM suppresses the activity epigenetically. DIM turns off or turns down your aromatase. DIM turns down your body's conversion of testosterone into estrogens. And of course, if you knew that you, when you make estrogens, you knew that you, because you had the fastest CYP1B1, you converted estrogens into the toxic 4-hydroxyestrogen, we can begin to see why in the hands of a skilled clinician, in the hands of a skilled clinician, the likes of Dr. the appropriate use of DIM at the appropriate times in your cycle is so... And by the way, this is proven in pharmaceutical clinical trials, is so radically... Beneficial to a subset of women, because what are we doing? We are draining the swamp of some of that estrogen toxicity. R- beautiful studies that show breast fibrosis and fibrotic breast tissue can be reduced with the consumption of DIM. Cystic development with the consumption of dim and so on and so forth. So here, without getting into further detail, is just to highlight to our audience that we can now begin to use intelligently, intuitively, and genetically guided nutraceutical or certain compounds to epigenetically move that cascade in places that we want it to go and away from places that we don't want it to go. Dr. Esteema. So to conclude at this point in time, Dr. Esteema, what we have now is we have an understanding of what and how estrogens change body behavior and cellular behavior. The different estrogens do this at different rates. The different estrogen metabolites, which we can predict based on your genetics, will impact cellular behavior in different ways for hydroxyestrogen in a more deleterious cellular behavioral way versus two hydroxyestrogen We can begin to see now how profound this understanding is, and I'll just end with one quick thing, two quick things. You know when you make that two hydroxy and four hydroxy estrogen, which we all make, all make, men and women, but of course, the ratio that we make it, the four versus the two, will be genetically driven. you have the fast CYP1B1? you have the slow CYP1A1, CYP1A2? That's a genetic phenomenon. And by the way, epigenetically confounded on that because you had the fast one b one and you were a smoker. You turned on that fast gene and you didn't turn on the 1A1, a 2 pathway. Or maybe you did things that turned off the 1A1, a 2 pathway. Not a good combination to be turning on the 1B1 pathway, turning off the 1A1, a 2 pathway. Very dangerous combination, okay? Well, when you make the 2-hydroxy and 4-hydroxy, those two metabolites of estrogen that are extremely polarized in the impact on your body, here comes the job of an uber, uber important gene called COMT. And an uber uber important cellular process called methylation. And what is COMPT? Catechol, methyl. Transferase. Let's break it down. Catechol methyl transfers. So, this is a gene that makes an enzyme that transfers methyl groups onto catechols. And what are catechols? Estrogen metabolites. And by the way, neurochemicals. And that is why neurochemical metabolism, dopamine, noradrenaline, are in the same molecular category as 4-hydroxy and 2-hydroxy estrogen, they actually belong to the same molecular class of compounds known as catechols. And that is why there is such a strong correlation to the metabolism of estrogen metabolites and behavioral outcomes, because they actually belong to the same catechol family. Now that COMT gene comes in three versions, a super fast version, a slow version, and a medium version, meaning the speed. The gene makes an enzyme that has three completely different biologic activities, slow, medium, and fast. And the person that has the fast comp is doing the methylation, the thing that the comp does 70% faster than the person that has the slow comp. This is not a five, 10% difference. This is a massive difference. Now you would be correct in assuming if you had the fast comp, you are much faster at metabolizing your estrogen metabolites, including the naughty 4 estrogen, When you methylate through COMT, four-hydroxyestrogen, that molecule that had the ability to still bind to the estrogen receptor that decomposes into these naughty compounds, including oxidants. Okay, when you methylate four-hydroxyestrogen, you turn it into four. 4- methoxyestrogen, for methoxyestrogen no longer can bind the estrogen receptor. For methoxyestrogen no longer decomposes into oxidants. So you want to methylate, believe me, you want to methylate all of your 4-hydroxyestrogen and the efficiency with which you methylate your 4-hydroxyestrogen largely returns to the efficiency of your COMT gene, fast, medium, slow. And then there are epigenetic factors that will turn on or turn off your COMT. So God forbid, you don't wanna have the slowest COMP gene inherently make the slowest COMT enzyme, that even when it's turned on, it's doing its job slow. And be the woman who has the slow COMT Making too much 4-hydroxyestrogen, right, and be the woman that is has that has poor antioxidation, because that's what the 4-hydroxyestrogen is going to do, and be the young woman who is incorporating lifestyle choices, environmental exposures, nutrient choices that are turning on the CYP1B1, making more 4-hydroxyestrogen, shutting off antioxidative potential, or not getting antioxidants in one's diet. And turning off the already slow compt, we are going to create in a young woman, just depending on choices that she can make, an entirely different monthly cycle outcome of estrotoxicity and its consequences versus much more healthy and informed individualized decisions that could radically change that outcome. I've gone on as Dr. Esteema, but we've covered, I think, all of these little nuances to really paint the picture of what, in conclusion, how important an intelligent functional genetic understanding is to understand the individuality. Any clinician worth their salt understands the individuality of a patient, but sometimes is befuddled at the individuality. And what functional genomics does is it allows us to describe. It allows us to explain and predict that individuality that sometimes you go, why is she behaving so differently to the same pill? Why is her body behaving so differently to exposures, to dietary choices? These are some of the fundamental contributors, Dr. Suleiman.
1: I love that. And, you know, it's just speaking about morphology with the, with the comp gene, you know, as you had mentioned, it also metabolizes your dopamine. And I've often had this sort of theory that, you know, there's, you know, you have the worriers, right? You, if someone, uh, you know, if you have, depending on the speed of your comp, you are going to, you know, metabolize dopamine very quickly or very slowly, as you talked about the two methoxy, uh, estrogens and the four methoxy estrogens, or you can metabolize it very quickly. And I often find, you know, I've, I've, I've had conversations sort of offline conversations in the past where I've said, you know, I bet there's like an entrepreneur gene. And I feel like this is sort of a piece of it because the entrepreneur, at least the women that I've worked with and and men in the past as well, we are like, okay, where's the next hit? Like they, you know, we climb this huge mountain and we're like, wow, we did it. Okay, fine. Great. Next, next one. And I think it's because we metabolize dopamine so
0: quickly. Fundamentally true. Yeah. All fundamentally right, what, true. and it's and it's not just the dopamine, Stephanie, just to be, it's dopamine and no adrenaline. Both right, of these right. counterbalancing uh, uh, neurochemicals, are metabolized by the same dopamine and you hit it on the head. Actually, uh, Stephanie, when the COM gene was discovered, the very first article, the peer-reviewed article, called it the warrior, W-A-R-R-I-O-R versus warrior, W-O-R-R-I-E-R-G. It's actually called the warrior warrior gene because Mm -hmm. if you've got the fast version of this gene, you clear your no adrenaline much faster, which of course is the anxiety, irksome causing, worry-causing neurochemical. You also clear your dopamine much faster. So what happens? These are individuals, they tend to have thicker skins. They tend to be more risk-taking because the fear doesn't bother them. And they tend to need the next hit because right. their dopamine doesn't stay there. They don't stay in La La Land for very long. Right. the Classic entrepreneurial spirit of the serial entrepreneur. Actually, whole psychology textbooks have been written about this gene and its impact in personality. But now for our viewers, I hope you can see that there is a very intimate dovetail between behavioral, emotional Uh, resilience and capacity and response compared to your hormonal sex, hormonal circadian cycle. It's very intimately linked.
1: Well, this has just been a masterclass on hormone metabolism. I know that my audience is going to eat this all up. And like I said, one of the things I appreciate most about the DNA company and the results that you get are actionable items. So if you know, for example, that you have a predisposition to favor that four hydroxy estrogen pathway, then we can bring in epigenetic, uh, you know, you'd mentioned caffeine, like maybe we can, you know, bring in caffeine at certain times of the month to, to drive that two methoxy estrogen pathway. Maybe we can start using DIM in a strategic way to help drive that phase one of estrogen metabolism towards that two hydroxy estrogen pathway. There's so many nuances and you can look at the, as you said, like the individuality of it. So this has just been absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, uh, ha- I would love for you to tell our listeners where they can find, you know, this is, we, you're a Canadian company, but I know that you do work, you do, do you work in the States as well? Like if absolutely.
0: internationally, but we have a strong, in fact, a very, very strong, uh, position and base in the U.S. So we service clients from all over the world, primarily Canadian and U.S. clients as equally and as seamlessly one to the next.
1: Right. And it's just a it's just a mailer, right? You mail like there's a kit that's mailed to your home. You sort of spit in a tube and then you and then you send it back. So it's not you know, you don't have to go to a lab. You don't have to have blood drawn. It's very it's very, very simple. I've had it done. I've had it done on my kids, uh, my partner, you know, so we sort of we really do uh, endorse uh, your company and and some of the work that you're doing. Yeah. thank you
0: and for our u.s citizens and our u.s your u.s clients out there stephanie our kit is fda approved so uh, and it's a saliva kit so in other words right. it's approved for the collection of saliva and once you forgive the grossness of it once you spit in the tube it's a spit tube your sample is stable so for it is really it's literally as easy as spitting in a tube putting it in the mail it comes back to us within You know, three to four weeks we have, once we've received your sample, we've processed your sample, we've done the analyses that Stephanie and I have just discussed. And that's just the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Um, We do all the different pathways. So again, to end where we started, everything we do is to define this intelligent functionality. We're not here to tell you whether you're gonna be a unibrow or not, but we are here to tell you, you know, do you have this predisposition? Are you that young woman without realizing it, going about life, going about your your choices, that didn't realize that month after month after month, you have this increased predisposition of either dominance with or without astrotoxicity, uh, the oxidative damage that you are ill-equipped to handle, and that by then being thusly informed, with the intelligent cooperation of a skilled clinician, the type of nutrition changes that you can make, lifestyle changes that you can make, environmental things that you have control of, that you can avoid better. The health outcomes in the years to come They may seem narrow when we start, but multiply these effects 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, we get into menopause, we can have a young woman who can end up in completely different health outcomes in the years to come. This is what we're so passionate and why we're so passionate about this.
1: Well, thank you very much, uh, Mansoor. It's always a pleasure. Anytime I get to spend time with you, it's time well invested. And I am looking forward to when, you know, things get back to real life, to sharing some, uh, some Indian food with you. I remember last time we were filming, we had this great Indian spread. It was awesome. So always lovely to see you. And thank you so much. You have really, really brought some just genius. The explanations, I think, are, are something that everybody's going to be able to grasp on. So thank you very, very much.
0: Really cool. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me.
1: All right. All right. I hope that you got lots of value from my conversation with Dr. Mansour. Definitely a episode that is worth listening to again. So you can save it. If you're listening to it on your phone, you can save it, uh, download it to your phone and re-listen to it. Take notes maybe next time. And I often find that there are a couple of couple of episodes we've done where I've needed to listen, re-listen to the podcast myself so I can fully appreciate what the guest is is um, trying to articulate, this is definitely one of them. So save this. And if you have friends that you think might benefit from it, make sure that you share this episode with them as well. So many of us struggle with lifestyle modifications and without a fundamental understanding of our genetic blueprint, it can be difficult to really reap all of the rewards that we might be expecting from those interventions. So subscribe and share and save far and wide. And if you are uh, so inclined, if you feel like this podcast is bringing you value, please with a cherry, an organic cherry on top, uh, go over to iTunes, leave us a review or at least a five star rating. That's the easiest one to do. Trust me, my team and I are always looking for the reviews on iTunes far and wide across the globe. And we would love to shout you out. So if you love the podcast, if you think that this is adding value to your life in any way, I'd love to hear about how and uh, in the in the form of a review or if you're too busy, five star rating would be just as wonderful and just as appreciated. So until next time, my Bettys, we will see you very soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you.